0: I think most people in our community, in the Midwest, probably across the country, the majority would say they are Christian. It's kind of Christian in the most general sense of the term. What they mean, many of them mean, is they're for Jesus. They're not against Jesus, they're for Jesus. They may be religious, at least go to church on Christmas and Easter, weddings and funerals. They're for Jesus. But it's a Jesus of their own making. It's a Jesus that doesn't really interfere with their lives too much. It's just a Jesus that needs to be there when I need him. And what so often happens is when the storms of life hit, when the bottom drops out of your world, many of those people will get angry with God and walk away. Why is that? Maybe a better question this morning would be, will that be you? Well, that's what we want to talk about. If you have a Bible, turn with us to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. In chapter 6, Jesus fed thousands of people with five Loaves of bread to fish. The next morning, the crowd finds Jesus. And Jesus identifies the reason they're searching for him is because it's morning and they're hungry and they need more food. And Jesus essentially says to them what he said to the woman at the well. You come to me looking for breakfast if you only understood who I am you'd understand I can give you so much more. Your soul is hungering for that which satisfies and I come to you as the bread of life. So you get kind of the summary of that in verse 27. They want to know what you have to do to get this, verse 29, believe. This is the consistent message of the Gospel of John that you Believe. You see it again in verse 35. He who believes. You see it again in verse 40. Those that believe have eternal life. You see it in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Believes in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That then gets us to verse 58 where again there is this comparison between the bread that God provided with Moses in the wilderness that they could eat and it satisfied their physical hunger, but Jesus reminds them they still died, didn't solve the problem. But the bread that Jesus offers gives them life forever, which gets us to verse Fifty-nine. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, this is what we'd refer to as an editorial comment. It's creating a, a background to better understand the conversation. A synagogue—it's not a temple. A synagogue was a place where the scriptures were read and discussed. So it's a big deal to have a synagogue in Capernaum. We're told that this is the Passover season. So Jesus has strategically picked this time of year when in the synagogue they would be reading scriptures related to the deliverance from Egypt, the Passover, the blood of the lamb that was painted on the door frames, the crossing through the Red Sea, the wanderings in the wilderness, the bread from heaven. This is all what they would be reading and discussing, which creates the backdrop for Jesus' conversation with them. It's also a reminder, these are highly religious people. They are not the religious leaders like the Pharisees that we saw down in Jerusalem, But with this synagogue in Capernaum, these are highly religious people. But what we find out again is that's not helping them. That's actually creating the barrier to understanding and believing what Jesus is saying. Verse 60, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus conscious that his disciples grumbled. So when John's using the term disciples, the term literally means a learner. So it wasn't unusual in this culture. You had a rabbi who was a teacher and you had disciples who were learners who followed to learn. So when we hear disciples, we think the 12, that's not what this is referring to. It's just referring to the people that are continuing to follow, to listen, to learn. But what the text tells us is they found this a difficult statement. The word difficult doesn't mean difficult to understand. The term literally means offensive. It's a stumbling block. They're starting to understand what Jesus is saying and they're finding it offensive when they say, who can listen to this? It could be translated, who can accept this? They're grumbling. They grumbled in verse 41. They're grumbling again. So here's what's happening. These are highly religious people who have convinced themselves that their religion is their way to God. They've taken the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that was full of these images and pictures that would be fulfilled in Christ. It was the story of Jesus. But rather than them understanding it that way, it's now become a substitute for Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the bread of life. I've come to give you what your soul longs for. But it's not going to be found through a bunch of religious activity. It's found through believing in me. And they're offended by that. Who can listen to this? Who can accept this? How dare you tell us that all our religious behavior doesn't make us right before God? This is a consistent problem in the Gospel of John. When I say religion, most people think that's what leads us to God. But the message of John is no, actually, that's what prevents us from experiencing a relationship with God. Because it becomes a barrier As long as I think through my religious behavior, I can merit favor with God, I don't need a savior. And that's where these people are stuck. So just to pull together kind of a review of this theme, go all the way back in your mind to John chapter one, when John the Baptist is talking about his baptism. And he says, this is just ceremonial. It's just water. All it really does is wash the dirt off you, but it's symbolic. But the one who comes after me will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the one that comes after me, Jesus has the power to actually change you from the inside out. Jesus then moved to Cana up in the Galilee area. And there he changes the water to wine. At a marriage feast, marriage is the picture of the coming together of Christ and his church. How is that possible? Jesus is going to have to turn the water to wine. He took ceremonial purification water and he turned it into wine, which was symbolic of his blood. This is what would be necessary for Jesus to come and fulfill the promises to provide salvation. But we talked about it then. This is going to be very difficult to turn the water to wine. Jesus then goes to Jerusalem. It's the Passover. He goes into the temple and he causes quite a stir. And in the midst of all of that, he identifies himself as the true temple. He's the fulfillment. The real temple is not a building, it's a person, and the person is Jesus. That then moves into a conversation with Nicodemus, who was a highly religious leader. Yet he was struggling to figure this out. He's trying to figure out, what does it take to be right with God? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus says, I I don't even know what you're talking about. Jesus says you have to be born of the water and the spirit. Water is identifying with John's baptism of repentance. Repentance means to change your mind. You have to change your mind. You can't make yourself righteous through religion. You have to trust the spirit of God to supernaturally change you from the inside out. And it can only happen through Jesus. Nicodemus walks away confused by all that. Jesus then travels north and in routes stops in Samaria where there is the conversation with the Samaritan woman. He identifies himself as the living water. I'm the fulfillment. I'm what your soul has been longing for. What's so interesting is that even though the Jews despised the Samaritans, This is the only place so far where there was this great harvest of souls. They actually listened and heard and believed. Jesus then goes up into, uh, back to Cana. And in Cana, he heals the Roman officials' son that's clear back in Capernaum. He then travels back to Jerusalem. And he heals the man who had been sick for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. But he intentionally does it on the Sabbath in order to expose the fallacies of the religious leaders. So now they're offended, they're upset. As a matter of fact, they're now plotting to kill him. Why? Because he broke the rules. Jesus' defense was, wait a minute, you know that God works on the Sabbath. I'm God, that's why I work on the Sabbath. In the midst of that was the reminder that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. That was the whole point of the Sabbath, is that one day God would do the work and we would rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross to experience salvations. Jesus is trying to get them to understand that, that, but they just don't want to hear it. Now he's back up north. He's fed over 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. And they're following him, but the only reason they're following him is because they want Breakfast. This is that whole idea that we like Jesus as long as Jesus delivers what we want. As long as Jesus helps us with our agenda. Don't talk to me about sin. Don't talk to me about repentance. Don't talk to me about taking over my life. I just want Jesus to be there if I need him. But now Jesus is telling them. I'm actually the bread of life. I've come to give you what your soul hungers for. But the way to receive that is not through a bunch of religious activity. It's not through a bunch of good works. It's rather by believing I am the fulfillment, the Messiah, the long-awaited Christ. The problem with religion is religious people start to believe their religious activities can save them. Who needs a savior if you can do it yourself through your religion? Jesus, you stay at church. I'll go visit you once a week. I just don't really want you interfering in my life. So Jesus is explaining this to highly religious people, and they're offended. It's become a stumbling block. They're grumbling. Who could possibly accept this? Verse 61, Jesus responds, Does this cause you to stumble? Verse 62, What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? One of the consistent messages of Jesus is that he's come from heaven. This came up in the dialogue last week. The people are saying, what is the deal with you saying you're from heaven? We know your parents. We know where you live. You're from Nazareth. You're not from heaven. You're from Nazareth. But Jesus is trying to get them to understand, I am God in the flesh. I'm the fulfillment. So now what Jesus is saying, maybe when I return to heaven, when I ascend, what then? So if you look at verse 62, the what is in italics, which tells you it's not actually in the Greek language. What Jesus is saying sounds a little bit more like this. Then if you see the son of man ascending to where he was before, it's like, then what are you going to do with that? So what Jesus is saying is there's more to come. There's more signs, there's more miracles. He's going to be crucified, he's going to be buried, he's going to rise from the dead, and he's going to ascend back to heaven. And Jesus is basically saying, when that happens, maybe you'll believe. And thousands and thousands and thousands did. But it wasn't until that point that they finally understood and believed. Verse 63 It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. This is the repeated message. There's nothing you can do in your own flesh to make yourself right before God. Jesus had this conversation with Nicodemus That which is born of the flesh is flesh. He wasn't just referring to literal birth. He's saying uh, when you're depending on your religion, you can't make yourself right before God. It's only the Spirit of God through salvation in Jesus that makes one right before God. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And who it was that would betray him. For he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So this is kind of a dividing point in the ministry of Jesus. The crowds are going to diminish and Jesus, more and more, is going to pour himself into those who believe. He will essentially teach and train those who, after he ascends, will literally change the world. This is a pretty significant moment in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus identifies that he knows many of them don't really believe. They're enjoying the miracles. They're enjoying the show. They'd like some breakfast, but they're not really Interested in what he has to say. So he knows that. He even knows that of those that he chooses to be his closest disciples, one of them will become a betrayer. One of them will never really believe. John's telling us Jesus knew that. Verse 65, I mentioned last week that throughout the Bible there is this mystery in salvation between God's part and our part. There's things that God is doing, electing, choosing, and there's things we're doing, listening, understanding, and believing. And it's really mysterious and confusing. You listen to some people talk and they have it all figured out. This is exactly the way it works. But nobody knows. It's mysterious. All we know is there's God's part and there's our part. And that shows up again and again. But verse 65 isn't really talking about that. Verse 65 is as practical as when all these people are together, it's hard to tell who really believes and who doesn't. As a matter of fact, we can't figure that out. You always get yourself into trouble when you're trying to figure out who the true believers are and who they are that don't really believe. You can't tell. But what Jesus is saying is God knows. God knows. God sorts it out. So God takes those who are true believers, and only God knows that, and gives them to Jesus. And Jesus then will keep them all the way to the finish line and the resurrection. So essentially, Jesus is saying, many of those who maybe we thought were believing, they're going to go home. But the those who truly believe, God knows who they are. Which gets us to verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples, these followers, withdrew, and they were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? So now the twelve is who we think of as the disciples. Jesus asked them the question. The crowd is dismissing. They're going home. Jesus looks at them. The, The way the question is worded in the Greek expects a negative answer. In other words, he doesn't think they're leaving. He's expecting them to say, no, we're we're not leaving. Peter then responds with a great response. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter responds, Lord, Where are we going to go? You're the only way. You're the only one that has the words of life. When Peter identifies Jesus as the Holy One, it's a very rare statement in the New Testament. But it's a phrase that shows up 30 times in the prophet Isaiah. It's a significant term. Peter understands to some degree that this Is actually God in the flesh, the long awaited Messiah. There is no plan B, there's no other way. So Peter responds and says, There's nowhere else to go. You're the only one that has the words of life. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus is identified. He's known that from the beginning. This wasn't a surprise. It's not that he didn't see it coming. Why he chose Judas knowing that, no one really knows. But it is sobering to think how much Judas witnessed how much he saw how much he heard at the end of the gospel of John in chapter 20 John tells us there's so many more things the disciples witnessed that he does not have room to write about what all did Judas see and hear and experience in Jesus and yet at the end of the story Judas says no Thanks. Not interested. As long as Judas thought he could use and manipulate Jesus for his own personal gain, he was in. I want Jesus, but I wanted Jesus of my own making. And when it became evident that that was not going to play out, Judas cashed in for 30 pieces of silver and said, I'm out. It is a good reminder that there are many people who don't believe because they simply do not want to believe. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of proof. It's not a lack of information. They just don't want it. God has created us with a will, and we can exercise our will, and we can choose to believe, or we can choose to say no thanks. Sometimes as parents, our kids grow up, and they don't want Jesus And we beat ourselves up thinking, what could we have done differently? What did we do? And it's so hurtful and confusing and painful. I understand that. But you do have to come to grips with the fact Judas walked with Jesus and saw unimaginable things for three years and at the end of the story said, no thanks, I'm out. People with a will to choose, can choose to believe or not to believe. That's just simply part of the story. Religion is often about inviting people on a cruise on the love boat. And Jesus is the captain of the ship. As long as there's a buffet and a pool and entertainment, and sunny skies, this is lovely. Jesus, you stay up there where you belong, and we're going to have a great time on the cruise. We'll call you if we need you. But then when life hits, when the storms of life come, when the bottom drops out of your world, people are like, wait a minute. This isn't what I paid for. And they get angry with God and walk away. Jesus has been very clear from the beginning, this is not a cruise ship, this is a battleship. For the next year, he will prepare these core disciples for the battle. All but probably one of them will ultimately be executed for their belief. When Peter says, Lord, there's nowhere else to turn. You alone have the words of life. He himself will be crucified upside down because of his absolute determination to believe that's true. These men understood it, and they would give their lives, believing that the life that our souls long for, will be found in the world to come. Many of you know that somewhere in my mid-20s, kind of reached a little bit of a crisis, maybe not a little bit, maybe a lot, crisis of faith, of trying to sort out over 20 years of pain and suffering 24 hours a day every day for over 20 years that we experienced in our home together. So maybe growing up in it, it seemed kind of normal. But as Patty and I got married and we were having our own kids, it started to sink in. That's not normal. And trying to understand what happened... And where was God in the midst of all that and trying to reconcile this message that God is good and he's kind and he's loving and he's compassionate up against the circumstances of life and trying somehow to sort this out and make sense of it. And I basically hit a fork in the road where it's like, I can't keep going on like this. Strangely enough, I was a pastor. I was preaching sermons. But I was going home and wrestling with, I don't know that this is true. I'm trying to reconcile what's coming out of my mouth with what I've experienced in life. I understood I could get angry and walk away, but what does that change? How does that fix anything? How does that make anything better? What has that accomplished? What is the point of becoming angry and bitter and walking away? I realized I needed to surrender. But for me, surrender meant surrendering the need for answers to my questions. I had so many questions about God and where was God and how does that make sense? And why did it have to be this way? and realizing I'm never going to get answers to those questions. If this is going to work, I have to surrender the need for answers and simply believe God tells the truth. God says he's kind. He says he's compassionate. He says he's good. He says he's loving. Either that's true or it's not. But if you're going to demand Answers to your questions, you're going to live a miserable, hopeless life. Surrender means I choose to believe and surrender my need for answers to my questions. I settled that in my middle to late 20s and decided, Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm 61 years old. And I have had my share of heartache. And I'm in. I believe more today than I've ever believed. God is good, He's kind, He's compassionate. He's loving. I don't doubt that. I do not have answers to my questions. And I've resolved that I never will. I can't tell you how many times along the way when we've gone through these difficult moments as a family, I've said to Patty, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. I settled this in my 20s over 30 years ago. I'm not going back. I believe God is good and he's faithful and he's kind. And I don't have to have answers to my questions. I'm in. For any of us, tomorrow may be the worst day of your life. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in all the way to the finish line. I do believe it with all my heart. I'm in. I hope you're in with me. Our Father, we're, th- we're thankful that when we don't have answers, you know that probably most of us in the room have lots of unanswered questions that seem, when it seems like the circumstances of life conflict with what you say is true about you. God, either you tell the truth or you don't. God, may we believe. Like Peter, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. You're the only one that gives us hope. You're the only one that will get us to the world our souls long for. Lord, we acknowledge this morning there's just nowhere else to turn. So we're in. All the way to the finish line. For this we pray in Jesus' name.